I don't know how to describe it other than like like a demon type of sound. But it's silhouetted, hulking, every bit of five and a half feet wide, 13 to 14 foot tall, pitch black. The one thing that ran through my mind when I had this encounter was I don't have a big enough gun. Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. I'm being joined today by Marcy and Gina, fellow Washingtonians. And I can say that even though I live in California, I lived there 50 years, so... <laughs> so now... You you two had a sighting just two months ago, but first I want to ask you. Um, you have you were telling me, Marcy, that you guys have a lot of Bigfoot paraphernalia. Oh yes, <laughs> tell me. Have, tell, like, I'm curious. Tell me what stuff. kind of stuff you got. Oh my gosh, I have earrings. Um, my father beaded me a medallion that's a Bigfoot. Um, hats, shirts, socks, and. <laughs> I have a little plastic figurine, like an action figure that I take on all my hikes and take pictures of him <laughs> when we go on hikes. Um, gosh, anything else? Can't think of anything else. <laughs> That's cool. You know, a lot of people go out hiking and do things and are, are very interested in the topic, but they never expect to run into one. Correct. I, I guess that's probably what happened with the two of you, right? Oh, yeah, Definitely. So you were going up on a hike, and I'm not going to say where, but we'll just say Mount Rainier because that's a pretty big area. Yeah. Tell, tell me what happened that day. Well, we decided to go on a hike. It was a Tuesday morning. It um, was kind of foggy, and we always like to be to the trail early. So I think we got up there. It was about 7 o'clock, Gina, when we yes, took off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was about seven o'clock and we took off from the parking lot and got to a certain area where you're going to be on a pedestrian bridge that goes over the highway, which is kind of strange on a hike, but you just go a little bridge over and then I was standing on the bridge. Gina was still off of the bridge taking a picture and we heard some scrub, some noise on the other side of the bridge and it happened to be a buck had run out of the trees over on the other side of the bridge and kind of walked around by the bridge and down by the road. And Gina had come up on the bridge with me at that time. And we were just watching the deer and we kept saying, Oh, don't go across the road. It's going to, it's going to get hit by a car. We don't want it to go across the road, but there was no cars at that time. It was a weekday and it was early in the morning. So it finally crossed the road slowly and just kind of wandered around a little bit and took off. We were still watching it. And we just heard a bunch of commotion on the other side of the bridge from the side that we were coming from, the trail that we were going on, but up on a hill in the trees. We just heard a bunch of commotion. And we both looked at each other, did you hear that? She's like, yeah, I heard it. What What was that? And I'm like, I don't know. And so we just stood there. And, and we have to say before we even approached that bridge, we hike a lot, but this is the first time. It was just really, it was just really different because there was a point before the bridge that we both were like, what's that smell? Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. There was a, something that just smelt so bad. It was really weird. And um, we saw a lot of bear scat too. So 
um, when we did hear that noise, we thought it was for sure going to be a bear because there was a, a lot of bear scat on that trail. So I want to just remember before the bridge, there was some yeah. stuff that we noticed that was kind of different for us. Yeah, and so then after that, we heard that noise and then we sat there for a little bit longer. We heard more commotion. We could tell it was getting closer to us. It was getting louder and it was just a lot of commotion, like a lot of, you could hear the trees moving and just in the background. And we're like, oh my gosh, what is it? It's gotta be a bear, it's, it's gotta be a bear. And so we were waiting and watching and Gina had her phone on, I had my phone on, on video. And I, at the point that we actually saw it, I pretty much just stopped my video and was just watching and <laughs> thankfully was still recording. <laughs> but um, I kept looking low in the trees, like in between the trees, lower where you could see in between them, thinking I'm gonna see something dark and it's gonna be a bear and it's gonna come out there. And I did see something dark before the opening that there was just a little opening where we saw him opening in the trees and I was like okay I think it's a bear I think it's a bear and then it came into that little opening and it had squatted down and picked something up in front of it and I was like it's a Bigfoot. It's a Bigfoot. Gina, it's a Bigfoot. Because she's like what are, what are we seeing? What are we seeing? I'm like it's a Bigfoot. I said it's tall. It is so tall. And she's really, like, what's really, it doing? Really and I'm like, really I don't know, it's picking something up. And I was like, it's like nine feet tall. I swear it's like nine feet tall. It's so tall. And then it walked behind trees again out of that opening. And we were still, she still had her phone going. And we were just sitting there just in shock of what we saw. And it came back into the opening again and bent down again and picked something else up. To the same spot? To the same spot mm -hmm. and just picked it up again whatever it was picking up and then took off again behind the trees where we couldn't see it and we both thought it was going in the direction to where it was going to go to the trail that we were just on so we thought he was going to come out into that opening so we kept sitting there and sitting there waiting for him to come out in that opening and he never did we didn't ever see him come back into that clearing so I'm not sure exactly where he went, but my husband and I went a few weeks later to that same area and he was gonna walk into that area where we saw him so I could take a picture for size difference and he could see if he saw any you know, footprints or anything back there. And he said, I can't even get back there. There's like trees down, there's so much underbrush. He goes, there's no way a, a person's walking through there. That's not a hiker that's going back there. And we had already come to that determination. There's no way there's a hiker that was way up on that hillside where, where we were. Even if you're going off trail to go to the bathroom, you're not gonna go way up where it was, where we first heard it. Yeah, then, no, when we're watching that buck, we're really concerned about that buck crossing the street. You know, we're filming the buck. In the meantime, watching the buck I can still, like way up in the mountain, like way up in the hill, you just hear trees like kind of coming down, like something's being stepped on and they were falling, crashing, crashing, crashing down. But it was like in a distance way up there. So I didn't really pay any attention to it. Then the, the buck crossed over. And then like Marcy said, it kept getting closer and closer and closer down. And that's when, you know, we turned and we're just like, what in the world? We thought it was a bear, like she said, our bear spray already. We thought it had to be a bear 
how it was breaking those trees way up high. We were probably watching that buck probably for a good 10, 15 minutes um, watching him above, um, yeah, coming over over there. So just want to really kind of explain the sounds that we heard way before we even saw him, and it was just way up high. There's just no way there'd be somebody up in the in the forest like that. Was it coming in the direction of the buck by chance? So the so the buck had come on the opposite side of the bridge and had crossed and went across the road, kind of in that general area where he was coming down. But he didn't ever go. the The buck didn't ever go into the woods. Mm-hmm. It just kind of stayed on the side of the road. It didn't really go up into the woods where where the Bigfoot was. But if he would have went up into the woods and up the hill, he would have ran into him. Mm-hmm. Can you describe the creature? It was because it was so foggy, misty that morning, and it was early in the morning. So it was right after daylight. We started right as the daylight was starting to break and all we could see was dark it was just dark and it was tall i think it was about nine feet tall from what i was gathering and and looking at it head going through the trees after it picked that thing up and kept walking i was like it's tall it's like nine feet tall i i was thinking that his legs that were so long were probably up to the middle of my rib cage is where you know the top of his legs would be and he was skinny. I didn't ever think that he would be that skinny, mm-hmm. but he was very athletic. He had very big feet. You could see the feet moving, walking, and I don't know what size they'd be. I mean, my husband wears a size 13, and they were way bigger than that. And whatever he grabbed, he just swooped it up, just like swooped, and then yeah. came back and swooped up something else. Yeah, it was just... Yeah. We looked at the video and my husband looked at it a whole bunch of times and like would go slow motion when he was picking whatever it was up. And he thinks when he's going really, really slow frame by frame that it was an animal carcass of some sort. He said, I think you can see like a head with ears. Yeah, could very well be. Um, you know, you when you and I talked, um, <laughs> I'd mentioned to you, and people don't understand, I think, um, about the different variations. And it's interesting in Washington, too, because, you know, the Cascades divide the state into two very different kinds of regions. In the mountainous Mm -hmm. area, we have typically, excuse me, what we see in the Patterson film, which is a very bulky, muscular creature, right? And that they're designed kind of tailor-made for mountainous terrain. Uh, But if you go east of that area it's very flat plains and and the variations over there and that's in eastern washington oregon uh, and parts of california uh, they're built like that they're very lean they're they're more um, adapted for open country running rather than you know mountainous terrain so and the location where you saw that was kind of kind of in the vicinity where you would expect to see something like that mm-hmm yeah, it it was just crazy just seeing it. We both were just like, oh, my gosh, we just saw a Bigfoot. We just Can saw a Bigfoot. <laughs> Did you think it saw you guys? That, 
it I'm thinking he had to have, but then also I'm thinking no, because it didn't I I couldn't tell that it ever turned its head towards us mm-hmm. unless it saw us before it came into the opening where we where we first saw it, which could have happened, but it if he did see us, he didn't pay any attention to us. How far away do you think you were from it? When it first happened, I told my husband that it was about 100 yards away. But then when we went back up there again, we were both shocked as to how close it was. It was probably about 35 or 40 yards away from where we were standing. And he's like, yeah, you guys know what you saw. That's close enough to know what you saw. There's no mistaking it. You know how tall it was and how, you know, how high its head was in the trees and everything. There was, it was not a person. There's no way it was a person. It was, I mean, everything was black. There was no sign of any sort of skin or clothing. There was no shoes. It was just the big, big feet walking and it, there's no way it was a person. Mm-hmm. I, I would suspect that if it was, and it probably was picking up some kind of food that it had either left there or, and we've had, you know, we've talked to people that have seen them hunting, um, you know, where a group of the creatures will be hunting a group of deer and, and they'll take, take one down and then go on after the others and then come back for the, the carcass. So it could be something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but that sounds very much like what happened. It was, you know, coming back for apparently a couple times for food. Yeah. That might've been what we we're smelling, Marcy. Yeah. I don't know. It was just so, it was just so strange to, mm-hmm. to actually see it. We were just totally, totally in shock and awe. And we couldn't even after we waited and, to see if it would come out into the open more where we could see it more. And we were waiting and waiting and then we're like, okay, he's, he's gone now. He's, we don't know where he went. So we continued on with our hike, but that hike in particular, when we first got to the parking lot, we heard elk bugling. And like Gina said, we saw all the bear scattered before we even got to where we saw him, we had seen the deer. And so we're like, Holy cow. Yeah. We, I mean, we were excited. We thought we might see an elk or a bear down in the That's valley right. or something as we're hiking. And then we saw that. And we're like, I don't care what we see the rest of the time. <laughs> we saw well, Bigfoot. I was just thinking that with all the stuff that you've you've amassed, you know, Bigfoot wise, did you ever think you'd see one? Oh, my goodness. No. no my goodness. Never. I have a big, um, I have a cross track. It's, I have a vehicle <laughs> on the side, a big um, forest decal but bigfoot have uh, bigfoot's in that forest decal oh, yeah. too i forgot about yeah. that <laughs> forget about that <laughs> i always and tell you, people you know be careful what you wish for yeah 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 I, I guess i should ask did you did you actually want to see one I always did. yeah yeah and you guys and had, I, are, are pretty lucky you had one of those um encounters where it wasn't it didn't interact yeah with you and, and certainly not in any negative way. Um, yeah. And I think that's what most people want, but unfortunately that's usually not what you get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just don't think he saw us. I'm not sure if it was the wind or anything, but like Marcy said, he, it never turned. It was just focused on what it was grabbing. And we were, I thought we were pretty quiet. I mean, you can hear us in the video, yeah. but we just didn't move. We we're just like still. You know, but yeah. 
yeah, I, w- I would suspect it was. It probably didn't see you and probably wasn't concerned, um, mm-hmm. you know, if it had a food supply there and was obviously made two trips that you saw to that mm-hmm. spot. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Um, did you guys have any questions for me? Well, I haven't really got to hear your whole story about like your when you were young and you saw it was oh. two the first time you saw, right? Yeah, my well, I uh, I grew up in Graham, and um, back in 1972, and you know, briefly, everybody on that's listening has heard these a few times, but you know, for the sake of people who haven't and, and yourselves. Um, We'd never heard the word Bigfoot or anything like that. Didn't didn't know anything such existed. Um, Spent a lot of time, you know, in the woods, fishing, hunting, stuff like that. Never saw anything. Uh, Me and a friend were heading over to another friend's house who lived about a quarter of a mile or half mile from me. And uh, we found some footprints on the way there in the snow. So my friend John, his dad took his head us go back out there and show him what we found and took some pictures and brought his pistol with him and then he told us what little he knew and, I, and I'm assuming it was from I never did ask him how he knew this stuff but it must have been a magazine article or something back in those days there, there wasn't a lot on TV um, mm-hmm. so you know we went out every weekend looking never saw another thing and promptly forgot about it so two years later my dog was barking we had to tie him up at night because he liked to go uh, visiting the neighbor farm neighborhood farms and he would bring their animals home <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't something we wanted to you know go apologize to the neighbors taking their animals back to him so we tied him up at night and right about dusk this one evening and it, it must have been october in 74 uh, he was barking like crazy and my dad always said you know we had to keep wild animals out of the yard there were a lot of skunks raccoons things like that around porcupines Mm -hmm. and he told me to shoot him because he might be rabid so i i grabbed a 22 and a couple of bullets and you know let the dog go and i said go get him and he went charging out to the tree line nearest our barn and i followed him and i watched him get up there and he froze he didn't go in the tree line his ears were up and his tail was up and he was motionless Mm -hmm. And as I approached him, I got about 50 feet away, and he whirled around and just took off past me as fast as he could run. And I thought, what's that crazy dog doing? <laughs> he never run from anything, ever. So wow. I walk up to the tree line, and he, he had gotten a pretty good, a pretty bad uh, encounter with a porcupine. You know, his muzzle was full of quills, and we had to take him to the vet. It was very expensive. Uh, so I thought maybe a porcupine was back, and he learned his lesson. You know, of course, it wasn't true. He got it again later, years later. But uh, <laughs> so I hear something moving in the tree line. I thought, okay, there's, you know, there's some animal in there. So I chambered around and there were some real low hanging fur limbs there. And I kind of pushed my way through them. And inside the that area, there was a big maple tree in there. So it was kind of a big clearing under this maple tree. And as I pushed through those boughs, here was this thing 15 or 20 feet in front of me. And I'm like, you know, I mean, just, well, you know, from your own encounter, all these things go through your mind in just a mm-hmm. milliseconds. And I thought, you know, what in the world is that? Uh, and then it dawned on me, oh, that must be one of the things that made the footprints. Because we found three sets of tracks in the snow. And I thought that must be one of them that made the footprints. And then immediately I'm thinking, well, how do I get out of this one? 
you know, because I was really close to it. It saw me. It was moving leaves with its right foot, and it stopped moving and just glared at me. And I'm staring back, mm. and I thought, okay, maybe if I shoot up near, it'll scare it. So I shoot up in the air, nothing happens. He just stands there and stares at me. And then I hear a noise from my right rear. And here comes another one walking out from behind some brush. And I walked over by the first one. And I said to myself, that's it. And I took off running. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. So how often do people have encounters where it's, it's not really scary or it's not intimidating. It's just, you know, I, I've interviewed thousands of people over five decades and it's, if they're lucky, they have one like your encounter was where the creature was apparently not interested or didn't notice the, you know, the Mm -hmm. people over there. Um, oftentimes we get things and, and, and a lot of these things are very primate. Like for instance, uh, they'll bare their teeth at people sometimes. And that's what other, you know, chimps, gorillas, monkeys do. They call that a lip flip in anthropology. Um, they'll throw things at them. Throwing things is also very primate. That means they, they're upset. They don't want you there. And and basically with a, with a Sasquatch, you want, to, you want to leave the area. If they're demonstrating some behavior that's very ape-like, um, you know, you should pay attention and, and act accordingly. Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm just, I'm just glad ours was not that type of. <laughs> you guys were very lucky. Yeah. But then see, yeah. I'm, I'm not real familiar. I haven't had a lot of people. I've interviewed a few people that have seen that particular variation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not well versed in what their behaviors are typically. You know, I, I assume that they're not much different than the other variations, but uh, there could be some differences because they're adapted for a different lifestyle. Yeah. So maybe they're not as, you know, aggressive. But I suppose... Now, the people that you've um, spoken to, is it across the country? Uh, what was that now? I'm, I'm sorry. Is it, are the people across the country that you've spoken to over the years or generally in this area? Oh, no, all over the country. Okay, wow. Oh, yeah, lots, lots of witnesses everywhere. Yeah, that makes sense. I know it's kind of hard to be, put you on the spot if you have anything else, or you can, you know, just get a hold of me anytime and you know, ask questions and I could send you pictures of things to look at and you know, to watch for. And Yeah, that would be great. I'm going to go through your channel. That would be great to see what to look out for. I mean, we've, we've joked about it when we're out there, you know, and I just, I just published, <laughs> I want to let people know too, and, and you too, um, that I just published my ninth, uh, book. If you want to call it that, it's actually, um, it's my own, field guide essentially it's called uh bigfoot survival guide oh nice so that's on it that's on amazon we'll have to look at that definitely well we really appreciate you letting us share our story we haven't really spoken out (laughs) to many people so thank you really appreciate that well i really appreciate and thank you both so much you're welcome thank you ma'am
All right. Thank you. In Bigfoot history, near Ridgefield, Washington, early July 1963, Mr. and Mrs. Martin Henrich, Portland, fishing on Lewis River, saw what they assumed was a tree trunk near the bank suddenly walk into a thicket. It was beige in color and bigger than a human. Mrs. Henrich told her story to the Oregon Journal, and as a result, Jim Arian, son of Charles Arian, who had a farm nearby, went looking for tracks. He found 16-inch prints leading in and out of the river on the south bank near the railway bridge. I saw some of these when they were several weeks old and made a cast. Screams in the night, Indian legends, miles of footprints, sightings. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Join us for eyewitness accounts, questions and answers, Bigfoot encounters of the past, and ongoing encounters in the present. Your host, two-time witness, field researcher for 43 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to... Creek Devil. Greetings. This story is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by Jim Sower. This is a story from Albert Ostman. I have always followed logging and construction work. This time I had worked over one year on a construction job and thought a good vacation was in order. British Columbia is famous for lost gold mines. One is supposed to be at the head of Toba Inlet. Why not look for this mine and have a vacation at the same time? I took the Union steamship boat to Lund, British Columbia. From there, I hired an old Indian to take me to the head of Toba Inlet. This Indian was a very talkative old gentleman. He told me stories about gold brought out by a white man from his lost mine. This white man was a very heavy drinker spent his money freely in saloons, but he had no trouble in getting more money. He would be away for a few days, then come back with a bag of gold. But one time he went to his mine and never came back. Some people said a Sasquatch had killed him. Now, at that time, I had never heard of a Sasquatch, so I asked what kind of an animal he called a Sasquatch. The Indian said, they have hair all over their bodies, but they are not animals. They are people, big people living in the mountains. My uncle saw the tracks of one that were two feet long. One old Indian saw one over eight feet tall. I told the Indian I didn't believe in their old fables about mountain giants. It might have been some thousands of years ago, but not nowadays. The Indian said, There may not be many but they still exist. We arrived at the head of the inlet about 4 o'clock p.m. I made camp at the mouth of a creek. The Indian had supper with me, and I told him to look out for me in about three weeks. I would be camping at the same spot when I came back. Next morning, I took my rifle with me, but left my equipment at the camp. I decided to look around for some deer trail to lead me up into the mountains. 
On the way up the inlet, I had seen a pass in the mountain that I wanted to go through to see what was on the other side. I spent most of the forenoon looking for a trail, but found none, except for a hogback running down to the beach. So I swamped out a trail from there, got back to my camp about 3 o'clock p.m. that afternoon, and made up my pack to be ready in the morning. My equipment consisted of one thirty thirty Winchester rifle, I had a special homemade prospecting pick, axe on one end, pick on the other. I had a leather case for this pick which fastened to my belt, also my sheath knife. The storekeeper at Lund was cooperative. He gave me some cans for my sugar, salt, and matches to keep them dry. My grub consisted mostly of canned stuff, except for a side of bacon, a bag of beans, four pounds of prunes, and six packets of macaroni, cheese, three pounds of pancake flour, six packets of Rye King hardtack, three rolls of snuff, one quart sealer of butter, and two one-pound cans of milk. I had two boxes of shells for my rifle. The storekeeper gave me a biscuit tin. I put a few things in that and cashed it under a windfall, so I would have it when I came back here waiting for a boat to bring me out. My sleeping bag I rolled up and tied on top of my sack, Together, with all my ground sheet and frying pan, I had one aluminum pot that held about a gallon, and as my canned food was used, I would get plenty of empty cans to cook with. The following morning, I had an early breakfast, made up my pack, and started up this mountain hog back. My pack must have been at least 80 pounds, besides my rifle. After one hour, I had to rest. I kept resting and climbing all that morning. About 2 p.m., I came to a flat place below a rock bluff. There was a bunch of willow in one place. I made a wooden spade and started digging for water. About a foot down, I got seepings of water, so I decided to camp here for the night and scout around for the best way to get on from here. I must have been up to near a thousand feet there was a most beautiful view over the islands in the strait. Tugboats with log booms, fishing boats going in all directions. Oh, it was a lovely spot. I spent the following day prospecting round, but no sign of minerals. I found a deer trail leading towards this pass that I had seen on my way up the inlet. The following morning I started out early while it was cool. It was deep climbing with my heavy pack, after a three hours' climb, I was tired and stopped to rest. On the other side of a ravine from where I was resting was a yellow spot below were some small trees. I moved over there and started digging for water. I found a small spring and made a small trough from cedar bark and got a small amount of water, had my lunch and rested here till evening. I made it over the pass late that night. Now I had downhill and good going, but I was hungry and tired, so I camped at the first bunch of trees I came to. I was trying to size up the terrain. What direction would I take from here? Toward west would lead to low land and some other inlet, so I decided to go in a northeast direction. Had good going and slight downhill all day. I must have made ten miles while I came to a small spring and a big black hemlock tree. This was a lovely campsite. I spent two days here just resting and prospecting. 
The first night here, I shot a small deer. Two days later, I found an exceptionally good campsite. It was two good-sized cypress trees growing close together and near a rock wall with a nice spring just below these trees. I intended to make this my permanent camp. I cut lots of brush for my bed between these trees. I rigged up a pole from this rock wall to hang my pack sack on, and I arranged some flat rocks for my fireplace for cooking. I had a really classy setup. And that was when things began to happen. I am a heavy sleeper. Not much disturbs me after I go to sleep, especially on a good bed like I had now. Next morning, I noticed things had been disturbed during the night, but nothing missing I could see. I roasted my grouse on a stick for breakfast. That night, I filled up the magazine of my rifle. I still had one full box of twenty shells and six shells in my coat pocket. That night, I laid my rifle under the edge of my sleeping bag. I thought a porcupine had visited me the night before, and porkies like leather, so I put my shoes in the bottom of my sleeping bag. Next morning, my pack sack had been emptied out. Someone had turned the sack upside down. It was still hanging on the pole from the shoulder straps as I had hung it up. Then I noticed one half-pound package of prunes was missing. Also, my pancake flour was missing. But my salt bag was not touched. Now, porkies always look for salt, so I decided it must be something else than porkies. I looked for tracks but found none. I did not think it was a bear. They always tear up and make a mess of things. I kept close to camp these days in case the visitor would come back. I climbed up on a big rock where I had a good view of the camp, but nothing showed up. I was hoping it would be a porky so I would get a good porky stew. These visits had now been going on for three nights. This night it was cloudy and looked like it might rain. I took special notice of how everything was arranged. I closed my pack sack. I did not undress. I only took off my shoes, put them in the bottom of my sleeping bag. I drove my prospecting pick into one of the cypress trees so I could reach it from my bed. I also put the rifle alongside me, inside my sleeping bag. I fully intended to stay awake all night to find out who my visitor was, but I must have fallen asleep. I was awakened by something picking me up. I was half asleep, and at first I did not remember where I was. As I began to get my wits together, I remembered I was on this prospecting trip and in my sleeping bag. My first thought was, oh, must be a snowslide, but there was no snow around my camp. Then it felt like I was tossed on horseback, but I could feel whoever it was was walking. Now I tried to reason out what kind of animal this could be. I tried to get up my sheath knife and cut my way out, but I was in an almost sitting position and the knife was under me. I could not get hold of it, but the rifle was in front of me. I had a good hold of that and had no intention to let it go. At times I could feel my pack sack touching me. I could feel the cans in the sack touching my back. After what seemed like an hour, I could feel we were going up a steep hill. I could feel myself rise for every step. 
What was carrying me was breathing hard and sometimes gave a slight cough. Now I knew this must be one of the mountain Sasquatch giants the old Indian had told me about. I was in a very uncomfortable position, unable to move. I was sitting on my feet, and one of the boots in the bottom of the bag was crossways with the hobnail sole up across my foot. Oh, it hurt me terribly, but I could not move. It was very hot inside. It was lucky for me this fellow's hand was not big enough to close up the whole bag when he picked me up. There was a small opening at the top. Otherwise, I would have choked to death. Now he was going downhill. I could feel myself touching the ground at times, and at one time he dragged me behind him, and I could feel he was below me. Then he seemed to get on level ground and was going at a trot for a long time. By this time, I had cramps in my legs. Oh, the pain was terrible. I was wishing he would get to his destination. I could not stand this type of transportation much longer. Now he was going uphill again. It did not hurt me so bad. I tried to estimate distance and directions. As near as I could guess, we were about three hours traveling. I had no idea when he started, as I was asleep when he had picked me up. Finally, he stopped and let me down. Then he dropped my pack sack. I could hear the cans rattle. Then I heard chatter, some kind of talk I did not understand. The ground was sloping, so when he let go of my sleeping bag, I rolled downhill. I got my head out and got some air. I tried to straighten my legs and crawl out, but my legs were numb. It was still dark. I could not see what my captors looked like. I tried to massage my legs to get some life in them and get my shoes on. I could hear now it was at least four of them. They were standing around me and continuously chattering. I had never heard of Sasquatch before the Indian had told me about them, but I knew I was right among them. But how to get away from here? That was another question. I got to see the outline of them now, as it began to get lighter. Though the sky was cloudy, and it looked like rain, in fact, there was a slight sprinkle. Oh, I now had circulation in my legs, but my left foot was very sore on top where it had been resting on my hobnail boots. I got my boots out from the sleeping bag and tried to stand up. I found that I was wobbly on my feet, but I had a good hold of my rifle. I asked, "'What you fellows want with me?' Only some more chatter. It was getting lighter now, and I could see them quite clearly. I could make out forms of four people, two big and two little ones. They were all covered with hair and no clothes on at all. I could now make out mountains all around me. I looked at my watch. It was 4.25 a.m. It was getting lighter now, and I could see the people clearly. They looked like a family, old man, old lady, and two young ones, a boy and a girl. The boy and the girl seemed to be scared of me. The old woman doesn't seem to be too pleased about what the old man dragged home. But the old man was waving his arms and telling them all what he had in mind. They all left me then. I had my prospecting glass and my compass around strings on my neck. The compass in my left-hand shirt pocket and my glass in my right-hand pocket. I tried to reason our location and where I was. 
I could see now that I was in a small valley or basin about eight or ten acres across, surrounded by high mountains. On the southeast wall there was a V-shaped opening about eight feet wide at the bottom and about twenty feet high at the highest point. That must be the way I came in. But how will I get out? The old man was now sitting near this opening. I moved my belongings up close to the west wall. There were two small cypress trees there, and this will do for a shelter for the time being. Until I find out what these people want with me, and how to get away from here, I emptied out my pack sack to see what I had left in the line of food. All my canned meat and vegetables were intact, and I had one can of coffee. Also, three small cans of milk, two packages of Rye King hardtack, and my butter sealer half full of butter. But my prunes and macaroni were missing. Also, my full box of shells for my rifle. I had my sheath knife, but my prospecting pick was missing and my can of matches. I only had my safety box full, and that held only about a dozen matches. That did not worry me. I can always start a fire with my prospecting glass when the sun is shining, if I got dry wood. I wanted hot coffee, but I had no wood, also nothing around here that looked like wood. I had a good look over the valley from where I was, but the boy and the girl were always watching me from behind some juniper bush. I decided there must be some water around here. The ground was leaning towards the opening in the wall. There must be water at the upper end of this valley. There is green grass and moss along the bottom. All my utensils were left behind. I opened my coffee tin and emptied the coffee in a dish towel and tied it with the metal strip from the can. I took my rifle and the can and went looking for water. Right at the head, under a cliff, there was a lovely spring that disappeared underground. I got a drink and a full can of water. When I got back, the young boy was looking over my belongings, but did not touch anything. On my way back I noticed where these people were sleeping. On the east side wall of this valley was a shelf in the mountainside with an overhanging rock, looking something like a big undercut in a big tree about ten feet deep and thirty feet wide. The floor was covered with lots of dry moss, and they had some kind of blankets woven of narrow strips of cedar bark, packed with dry moss. They looked very practical and warm with no need of washing. The first day, not much happened. I had to eat my food cold. The young fellow was coming nearer me and seemed curious about me. My one snuff box was empty, so I relied it toward him. When he saw it coming, he sprang up quick as a cat and grabbed it. He went over to his sister and showed her. They found out how to open and close it. They spent a long time playing with it. Then he trotted over to the old man and showed him. They had a long chatter. Next morning, I made up my mind to leave this place, if I had to shoot my way out. I could not stay much longer. I had only enough grub to last me until I got back to Toba Inlet. I did not know the direction, but I would go downhill, and I would come out near civilization someplace. I rolled up my sleeping bag, put that inside my pack sack, packed the few cans I had, swung the sack on my back, injected the shell in the barrel of my rifle, and started for the opening in the wall. The old man got up. 
held up his hands as though he would push me back. I pointed to the opening. I wanted to go out. But he stood there pushing towards me and said something that sounded like, Soka, Soka. I backed up to about sixty feet. I did not want to be too close, so I thought if I had to shoot my way out, a thirty-thirty might not have much effect on this fellow. It might just make him mad. I only had six shells, so I decided to wait. There must be a better way than killing him in order to get out from here. I went back to my campsite to figure out some other way to get out. I could make friends with the young fellow or the girl. They might help me. If I only could talk to them. Then I thought of a fellow who had saved himself from a mad bull by blinding him with snuff in his eyes. But how will I get near enough to this fellow to put snuff in his eyes? So I decided next time to give the young fellow my snuff box and to leave a few grains of snuff in it. He might give the old man a taste of it. But the question is, in what direction will I go if I should get out? I must have been near twenty-five miles northeast of Toba Inlet when I was kidnapped. This fellow must have traveled at least twenty-five miles in the three hours he carried me. If he went west, we would be near salt water, and same thing if he went south. Therefore, he must have gone northeast. If I then kept going south and over two mountains, I must hit salt water someplace between Lund and Vancouver. The following day I did not see the old lady until about four o'clock p.m. She came home with her arms full of grass and twigs and all kinds of spruce and hemlock as well as some kind of nuts that grow on the ground. I have seen lots of them on Vancouver Island. The young fellow went up the mountain to the east every day, and he would climb better than a mountain goat. He picked some kind of grass with long, sweet shoots. He gave me some one day. Well, they tasted very sweet. I gave him another snuff box with about a teaspoon of snuff in it. He tasted it, then went to the old man. He licked it with his tongue. They had a long chat. I made a dipper from a milk can, and I made many dippers. You can use them for pots, too. You cut two slits near the top of any can, then cut a limb from any small tree, cut down back of the limb, down the stem of the tree, then taper the part that you cut from the stem. Then cut a hole in the tapered part, slide the tapered part in the slit you have made in the can, and you have a good handle on your can. I threw one over to the young fellow that was playing near my camp. He picked it up and looked at it, and he went to the old man and showed it to him. They had a long chatter. Then he came to me, pointed at the dipper, then at his sister. I could see that he wanted one for her, too. I had other peas and carrots, so I made one for his sister. He was standing only eight feet away from me. When I had made the dipper, I dipped it in water and drank from it. He was very pleased, almost smiled at me. Then I took a chew of snuff, smacked my lips, mmm, said that's good. The young fellow pointed to the old man and said something that sounded like ook. I got the idea that the old man liked snuff and the young fellow wanted a box for the old man. I shook my head. I motioned with my hands for the old man to come to me. I do not think the young fellow understood what I meant. 
He went to his sister and gave her the dipper I made for her. They did not come near me again that day. I had now been there six days, but I was sure I was making progress. If only I could get the old man to come over to me. Get him to eat a full box of snuff, that would kill him for sure. That way kill himself. I wouldn't be guilty of murder. The old lady was a meek old thing. The young fellow was by this time quite friendly. The girl would not hurt anybody. Her chest was flat like a boy's, no development like young ladies. I am sure if I could get the old man out of the way, I could easily have brought this girl out with me to civilization. But what good would that have been? I would have to keep her in a cage for public display. I don't think we have any right to force our way of life on other people, and I don't think they would like it. The noise and racket in a modern city, well, they would not like it any more than I do. The young fellow might have been between eleven to eighteen years old, and about seven feet tall, and might weigh three hundred pounds. His chest would be fifty, fifty-five inches. His waist was about thirty-six to thirty-eight inches. He had wide jaws, narrow forehead that slanted upward round at the back and about four or five inches higher than the forehead. The hair on their heads was about six inches long. The hair on the rest of their body was short and thick in places. The women's hair on the forehead had an upward turn like some women have. Well, they call it bangs among women's hairdos. Nowadays, the old lady could have been anything between forty to seventy years old. She was over seven feet tall. She would be about five to six hundred pounds. She had very wide hips and a goose-like walk. She was not built for beauty or speed. Some of those lovable brassieres and uplifts would have been a great improvement on her looks and her figure. The man's eye teeth were longer than the rest of the teeth, but not long enough to be called tusks. The old man must have been near eight feet tall, big barrel chest and big hump on his back, powerful shoulders, his biceps on upper arm were enormous and tapered down to his elbows. His forearms were longer than common people have, but well-proportioned. His hands were wide, the palm was long and broad and hollow like a scoop. His fingers were short in proportion to the rest of his hand. His fingernails were like chisels. The only place they had no hair was inside their hands and the soles of their feet and the upper part of the nose and eyelids. I never did see their ears. They were covered with hair hanging over them. If the old man were to wear a collar, it would have been uh, at least thirty inches. I have no idea what size shoes they would need. I was watching the young fellow's foot one day when he was sitting down. The soles of his feet seemed to be padded like a dog's foot, and the big toe was longer than the rest, and very strong. In mountain climbing, all he needed was footing for his big toe. They were very agile. To sit down, they turned their knees out and came straight down. To rise, they came straight up without help of hands or arms. I don't think this valley was their permanent home. I think they move from place to place as food is available in different localities. They might eat meat, but I never saw them eat meat or do any cooking. I think this was probably a stopover place, and the plants with sweet roots in the mountainside might have been in season this time of the year. 
they seem to be most interested in them, and the roots have a very sweet and satisfying taste. They always seem to do everything for a reason, wasted no time on anything they did not need. When they were not looking for food, the old man and the old lady were resting, but the boy and the girl were always climbing something or some other exercise. A favorite position was to take hold of his feet with his hands and balance on his rump, then bounce forward. The idea seems to be to see how far he could go without his hands or feet touching the ground. <laughs> Sometimes he made twenty feet. But what do they want with me? They must understand I cannot stay here indefinitely. I will soon have to make a break for freedom. Not that I was mistreated in any way. One consolation was that the old man was coming closer each day and was very interested in my snuff. Watching me when I take a pinch of snuff, he seems to think it useless that I only put it inside my lips. One morning, after I had my breakfast, both the old man and the boy came and sat down only ten feet away from me. This morning I made coffee. I had saved up all the dry branches I found, and I had some dry moss, and I used all the labels from the cans to start a fire. I got my coffee pot boiling, and it was strong coffee, too, and the aroma from boiling coffee was what brought them over. I was sitting eating hardtack with plenty of butter on and sipping coffee. Oh, and it sure tasted good. I was smacking my lips, pretending it was better than it really was. I set the can down that was about half full. I intended to warm it up later. I pulled out a full box of snuff, took a big chew. Before I had time to close the box, the old man reached for it. I was afraid he would waste it and only had two more boxes, so I held on to the box, intending him to take a pinch like I had just done. Instead, he grabbed the box and emptied it into his mouth, swallowed it in one gulp. Then he licked the box inside with his tongue. After a few minutes, his eyes began to roll over in his head. He was looking straight up. I could see he was sick. Then he grabbed my coffee can that was quite cold by this time. He emptied that in his mouth, grounds and all. That did no good. He stuck his head between his legs and rolled forward a few times away from me. Then he began to squeal like a stuck pig. I grabbed my rifle, and I said to myself, This is it. If he comes for me, I will shoot him plumb between his eyes. But he started for the spring. He wanted water. I packed my sleeping bag in my pack sack with the few cans I had left. The young fellow ran over to his mother. Then she began to squeal. I started for the opening in the wall. "'and I just made it. "'The old lady was right behind me. "'I fired one shot at the rock over her head. "'I guess she had never seen a rifle fired before. "'She turned and ran inside the wall. "'I injected another shell in the barrel of my rifle "'and started downhill, "'looking back over my shoulder every so often "'to see if they were coming. "'I was in a canyon, and good traveling, "'and I made fast time. "'Must have made three miles in some world-record time.' I came to a turn in the canyon, and I had the sun on my left. That meant I was going south, and the canyon turned west. I decided to climb the ridge ahead of me. I knew that must have two mountain ridges between me and salt water, and my climbing this ridge, I would have a good view of this canyon. So I could see if the Sasquatch were coming after me.
I had a light pack and was making good time up this hill. I stopped soon after to look back to where I came from, but nobody had followed me. I came over the edge of the ridge, and I could see Mount Baker. Then I knew I was going in the right direction. I was hungry and tired. I opened my pack sack to see what I had to eat. I decided to rest here for a while. I had a good view of the mountainside, and if the old man was coming, I had the advantage because I was above him. To get me, he would have to climb up a steep hill, and that might not be so easy after stopping a few thirty-thirty bullets. I had made up my mind this was my last chance, and this would be a fight to the finish. I rested here for two hours. It was three o'clock p.m. when I started down the mountainside. It was nice going, not too steep, not too much underbrush. When I got near the bottom, I shot a big blue grouse. She was sitting on a windfall, looking right at me, only a hundred feet away. I shot her neck right off. I made it down the creek at the bottom of this canyon. I felt I was safe now. I made a fire between two big boulders, roasted the grouse. Next morning when I woke up, I was feeling terrible. My feet were sore from dirty socks. My legs were sore. My stomach was upset from the grouse that I'd eaten. I was not too sure I was going to make it up that mountain. I finally made the top, but it took me six hours to get there. It was cloudy, visibility about a mile. I knew I had to go downhill. After about two hours, I got down to the heavy timber and sat down to rest. I could hear a motor running hard at times, then stop. I listened to this for a while and decided the sound was from a gas donkey. Someone was logging in the neighborhood. I told them I was a prospector and was lost. I did not like to tell them I had been kidnapped by a Sasquatch, as if I had told them they would probably have said, He is crazy, too. The following day I went down from this camp on Salmon Arm Branch of the Seashelt Inlet. From there I got the Union boat back to Vancouver. That was my last prospecting trip, and my only experience with what is known as Sasquatches. I know that in 1924 there were four Sasquatches living. It might be only two now. The old man and the old lady might be dead by this time. That ends Albert Osman's story. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.